contemplations before chanting. The Sangha is invited to come back to our breathing so that the collective energy of mindfulness can bring us together as an organism, flowing as a river with no more separation. Let the whole Sangha breathe as one body, listen as one body, chant as one body, transcending the boundaries of a delusive self, liberating us from the superiority complex, the inferiority complex, and the equality complex.
Good morning, dear Sangha. Today is uh, the 25th of September, 2013, and we are in Magnolia Grove uh, Practice Center on our second day of the retreat with the team Healing Oneself, Healing the World. The process of healing begins when we breathe in. There is no way to healing. Healing is the way. When we breathe in mindfully, we bring our mind home to our body. And that can be done in a few seconds. In our daily life, uh, very often our body is there, but our mind is elsewhere. In the past, in the future, in our projects, the mind is not with the body. So in that moment, we are not truly ourselves. So when we focus our attention on our in-breath and breathe in, we bring our mind home to our body. And there, there is a reunification between body and mind that can be done in just a few seconds. When you spend two hours with your computer, you forget completely that you have a body. And in that moment, you are not truly there to live your life deeply. In Plum Village, our brothers and sisters program a bell mindfulness in their computer. And every quarter of an hour, uh, they hear the bell and they stop working. They begin to breathe in and bring their mind home to the body. They enjoy breathing in and out and smile. When we bring our mind home to our body, what does something happen? First is uh, the stopping of our thinking, because there is uh, always that kind of mental discourse in our mind. Thinking. And that is a kind of noise, always thinking. And the thinking may take us away, remove us from the here and the now. The thinking can be uh, productive, but uh, most of our thinking are not productive. <laughs> when you think, you, are, you might be lost in your thinking. I think, therefore, I'm not there. So the first thing when you you notice that uh, uh, you notice is that when you begin to focus your attention on your in breath, uh, you stop the thinking because your mind only has one object, and that object is your in breath. So to be mindful of your in breath, to be concentrated concentrated on your in breath. 
you can stop the thinking. And then also you notice that your regret and your sorrow concerning the past can also stop. And your, your fear, your uncertainty, your worries about the future will also stop. So just breathing in mindfully brings you a lot of freedom. In just a few seconds, you get more freedom. Freedom from the past, from the future, from your thinking, from your projects. And if uh, you continue to breathe out and breathe in, you maintain that uh, state of freedom. And if you are to make a decision, it's much better to make uh, a decision when you are free, rather than to make a decision under the influence of your fear, your anger, your regret, your worries. So freedom is possible. And freedom is obtained when you begin to breathe in mindfully. And breathing in mindfully is not something hard to do. You do not have to suffer breathing in because you are breathing in and out all day long. You don't need to struggle to fight, to suffer while breathing in. In fact, breathing in can become something very pleasant. You just allow yourself to breathe in naturally. You just focus your attention on your in-breath. It's like uh, the sunshine does not interfere with the flower. The sunshine just embraces the flower. And uh, being embraced by the sunshine, the flower will begin to problem. So if uh, we focus our attention on our in-breath and out-breath, not only we can enjoy our in-breath and out-breath, but we are established in the here and the now, and we are in touch with many wonders of life within and around us and the process of healing can start. The healing is difficult for the healing to take place because we are under pressure, tension, stress. Pressure in our body, pressure in our mind, there is a kind of uh, energy that is pushing us to run. And that uh, habit of running may have been transmitted to us by our mother, our father, our ancestors. Many of us believe that happiness is not possible now, here and now. So many of us, uh, most of us, believe that happiness is possible in the future. So we try to run into the future and get some 
conditions of happiness that we do not have in the here and the now. According to the, this teaching and practice offered by the Buddha, you already have enough or more than enough conditions to be happy in the here and the now. And if you breathe in and bring your mind home to your body, you'll be established in the present moment and you recognize the many conditions of happiness that you already have. You are much luckier than many people. These conditions of happiness are too many, more than enough to make us happy in the here and the now. And when you have that insight, the insight that I don't need to run into the future, into the future in order to be happy, and then that insight helps you to really stop. And when you are able to stop, you can release easily the tension in your body. And you can stop your mind from running. Because there is a habit of, of running in every one of us. And it creates tension, not only in the body, but in the mind. And mindfulness helps us to recognize that habit energy of running. And when we see, we notice the presence of that habit energy of running, we smile to it. And we are free from it. To recognize the habit energy of running, and it, it will lose its power. It cannot push you anymore to run. And that is why we can release easily the tension in our body. We are told that uh, we should uh, release uh, the tension in our body. And many of us have tried. We want to release the tension in our body, but we cannot release. It's not because you want to release the tension that you can release the tension. You need some insight. And that insight comes from deep looking. Many of us believe that we can only be happy if we have enough power, fame, wealth, and sensual pleasures. That is a kind of belief that many people have. When we look around, we see that there are people who have plenty of these four things. They are not happy. So you know that uh, these kind of things are not uh, real conditions of happiness. That is the insight that can help you to stop running after these four objects of craving, namely fame, power, uh, wealth, and sensual pleasures. And when you recognize the fact that there is a habit energy that's pushing you running into the future, and you have been doing that for many, many years, and uh, you have not attained that kind of uh, happiness. So that kind of insight helps you to stop. 
and then you can release very easily the tension in our body. And mindfulness is a kind of energy that carries within itself the energy of concentration and insight. Breathing in mindfully, you can get many insights. Insight, enlightenment, is not something far away. You can obtain it very quickly. When you breathe in mindfully, you can get the insight that you are alive. As I breathe in, I know I am alive. That is already an insight. Because someone who is already dead, he cannot breathe in anymore. And you who are breathing in, you are alive. And to be alive is a wonderful thing. To be still alive is a miracle. The greatest of all miracles, to be alive. So just breathing in mindfully for three seconds, you touch that inside. Oh, I am alive. And when you breathe out, you can already celebrate the fact that you are alive. Joy can be born from that kind of insight. It's simple. And uh, while breathing in and out, if you can release the tension, if if you can allow joy to happen, the healing begins right away. Healing is every breath. Healing is every step. The practitioner knows that. She knows that every step can be healing. Every breath can be healing. And she makes good use of this uh, in-breath and out-breath, these steps in order to get the healing that she needs. Every time we hear the sound of the bell, we have a chance to practice mindful breathing and stopping our, our thinking. We can, the, the practice of listening to the bell can be a very deep practice. We can invite all the cells in our body to join us in listening to the bell and allow the sound of the bell to penetrate into every cell of our body. Listening deeply. And we know that our ancestors are fully present in every cell. We listen in such a way that all our ancestors are listening at the same time with us. And if we, we can be peaceful and uh, joyful while listening, and then all our ancestors in us will experience that kind of joy and peace at the same time. So it is possible to invite all our ancestors in us to join us in listening to the bell.
and listen to the bell. Listening to the bell like that is very healing. And the same thing is true when you do walking meditation. Your feet have been transmitted to you by your ancestors, your parents. You walk with your feet, but these feet are also theirs. I can see the hand of my mother in my hand. I can see the hand of my father in my hand. And I can see the hand of my ancestors in my hand. Because I am a continuation of my father, of my mother, of my ancestors. So I'm breathing in with my lungs. But these lungs are also theirs. So we can invite our ancestors to enjoy breathing in with our lungs. And we can invite our ancestors to walk with our feet. You can invite your father, your mother to enjoy walking with you. And your heart will be full of love. Mother might be too busy in her life. She did not have a chance to learn about walking meditation and enjoy every step. Now you are walking for her. Invite her to walk with you. And your heart is full of love. And that kind of walking is also very healing. When you love someone, you like to offer him or her something that can make him or her happy. According to this practice, the most precious thing that you can offer him or her is your presence. The question is, how can you love if you are not there? In order to love, you have to be there. And to be there is a practice. Sometimes, or if very often, your body is there, but your mind is not there. You are not there for him, for her. You are lost in your thinking, your sorrow, your fear. You are not really there for him or for her. So, focus your attention on your in-breath and breathe in. You bring your mind home to your body and you are there. To be there is a practice. And to make a mindful step or to breathe in a mindful in-breath, bring our our, our mind home to our body and it can be there in just a few seconds. And when you are truly there, you can go to the person we love. And you look, you look into his eyes or her eyes and you say, Darling, I'm here for you. This is my gift. The most precious thing you can offer him or her, the person you love, is your presence. It's not something you buy in a supermarket. And then you can make your presence more valuable if you know how to breathe and to walk.
This morning, Sister Peace uh, led us in a meditation on flower fresh, mountain solid, water reflecting and space free. That is to improve the quality of our presence. Breathing in, I see myself as a flower. That's not imagination. Because all of us are born as a flower in the garden of humanity. The human body is beautiful. It's a real flower. But if you don't know how to practice, and then you will lose gradually our flowerness, our freshness, our beauty. And you don't have much to offer him or her. So to breathe in is to restore our freshness, our flowerness, our beauty. You don't need cosmetics. You need only to be, to be yourself. And if you know how to breathe and how to walk, you can restore your freshness, your beauty. And your presence is something very valuable to offer to him or to her. According to this practice, to love is to be there. And you can improve the quality of your being, your presence. And Flower Fresh is the, one of the practices that help you to be, help your presence to be more valuable. You restore your beauty. You restore your freshness. Darling, I'm there. I'm here for you. And you can do it with your telephone also. You can practice this mantra with your telephone. The other person might be traveling or in the office. You call him, you call her and say, Darling, you know something? I'm here for you. <laughs> so easy. And the mantra is effective right away, I guarantee. It makes you happy, it makes the other happy right away. Breathing in, I see myself as a mountain. Breathing out, I feel solid, stable. Solidity, stability is one of the qualities that we can cultivate. A person who is not stable is not a happy person. And they cannot count on us if we are not stable. So there is a mountain in us, our solidity, our stability. And we have to breathe in and restore our stability, our solidity. We know that uh, without that stability, we cannot be happy and the other person cannot count on us. Breathing in, I see myself as still water. The lake is so still that it reflects sky and cloud and mountains. And you can aim your camera and take a picture of the sky. Of the, of the still water. 
So this is uh, to cultivate more peace, more tranquility. A person who does not have enough peace in him or in her cannot be a happy person. And that is why breathing in can calm our body, calm our mind, and make us more peaceful, and make our presence more valuable. Breathing in, I see myself as still water. Breathing out, I reflect things as they truly are. There is no uh, wrong perception, because I am still and calm. That, that is why I can see things as they are. I do not distort reality by my uh, lack of peace. So to restore peace is very important. A beautiful person is a person who has peace in him or her. And then the, the last element, the fourth element, is uh, freedom, space. Breathing in, I see myself as space. Breathing out, I feel free. Space, freedom, is something we cultivate. cultivate. Again, with the practice of mindful breathing, mindful walking, we can cultivate freedom, space. Remember on the 50th, 50th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. Uh, President Obama asked us to ring the bell at 3 o'clock. And he's, he said, let freedom ring. But that is only freedom outside. We need to be free inside free from worries, from fear, from anger. And then there is a lot of space in ourselves. A person who does not have enough space in his heart cannot be a happy person. So breathe in or practice walking in order to calm down, to transform the fear, the anger, the worries in us, we have a lot of space inside. And with that freedom, we can offer ourselves to the person we love. Breathing in, I see myself as space. I have a lot of space inside. I have a lot of space around me. And that is why I can offer uh, space to the person I love. So with the practice of mindful breathing, mindful walking, we can cultivate freshness, beauty, stability, uh, calm, peace, and freedom. And uh, we can offer the person we love 
our presence that has uh, these four qualities. There is uh, a sutra on mindful breathing, Anapanasati Sutra. And there are 16 exercises of mindful breathing. And the, the first four are to take care of our body. And the second set of four exercises is to take care of our feelings. So mindfulness uh, can be practiced in four domains, body, that is the first uh, domain of uh, mindfulness, and then feeling, the second domain of the practice, the third is uh, mind mental formation and the fourth is uh, object of mind So mindful, mindfulness is always mindfulness of something. And first of all, we practice mindfulness of the body in order to take care of our body. To heal our body. And then we practice mindfulness of feelings in order to take care of our feelings. And to heal our feelings. And then we practice uh, mindfulness of mind. Mind is made of uh, particles, like matter, scholar, mental formations. It's like a river. The mind is like a river. And each uh, drop of water in that river is a mental formation. Mindfulness is a mental formation. Concentration is a mental formation. Insight is a mental formation. Loving kindness is one. Compassion is another one. There are positive, wholesome mental formations. And there are negative, unwholesome mental formations like anger, fear, despair, and so on. And when I was in office, uh, I had to learn by heart the names of all mental formations so that when one come up, I have to recognize and call it by, by its name. So the third uh, object of mindfulness is mental formations. That, that is the river of your mind. To meditate is to sit on the bank of that river of mind and observe and recognize 
the mental formation that is uh, coming up. And then the fourth uh, object of uh, mindfulness is the objects of mind. Because mental formations always have their objects. To be angry is always to be angry at something. Uh, to love means to love someone or something. So every mental formation has an object. And when you perceive, uh, perception is a mental formation. When you perceive a mountain, there is the there is the, an object of your perception, that mountain. And in the Buddhist tradition, we don't believe that the mountain is something that exists uh, apart from the mind. Because uh, we call it a, an object of mind. So the cosmos, the galaxies, they are objects of our mind. Consciousness is consciousness of something. And uh, mind cannot be without objects. So when we are mindful of these mental formations, we are mindful of subject and also object of our mind. And the first exercise of uh, mindful breathing, we have tried this morning. Breathing in, I am aware of my in-breath. Breathing out, I'm aware of my out-breath. That is to, to recognize the in-breath as in-breath, as the out-breath as the out-breath. It's a very simple exercise, but as you, you know, the effect is great. It can stop your thinking. It can stop your worries, your fear. It gives you a lot of uh, freedom. So this uh, exercise, we call it uh, uh, awareness of, of in-breath and out-breath. And the second exercise is breathing in. I follow my in-breath all the way through. Suppose your in-breath is uh, is long like this, three or four seconds. And your mind is this finger, and you follow your in-breath closely, being aware of it all the way through. If we breathe like that, the pleasure will grow, and the concentration will grow at the same time. Not only you are aware of the, your in-breath, but you are fully concentrated on your inner. And as mindfulness and concentration are powerful, 
and then the pleasure and the insight can come very quickly. Mindfulness, concentration and insight. There is no interruption during the time you breathe in. So the second exercise is to follow your in-breath. The whole length and uh, the quality of your in-breath and out-breath is improved. You are more concentrated, you are more mindful, you are more joyful, you are freer. That is the second exercise. And the third exercise is uh, breathing in, I'm aware of my body, aware of my of my body. Bringing mind back to body. And as uh, you breathe in and you become aware of your body, you might notice that there is uh, tension, pain in your body. You have allowed tension and pain to be accumulated in your body. And that may be the cause of many uh, diseases that will come. That is why you are motivated by the desire to release this tension. And that is the fourth exercise of mindful breathing. Breathing in, I release the tension in my body. And we have learned that uh, without that insight, we cannot release the tension easily. Calming the body. Release the tension in the body. This set of four exercises are to take care of your body. But while taking care of your body, you produce uh, freedom, joy, pleasure. Because body is linked to mind. And with the fifth exercise, you go to the realm of feeling and you generate a feeling of joy. Breathing in, I'm aware of the feeling of joy. I generate the energy of joy. Generating joy. A practitioner should be able to to generate joy and happiness. And the principle is simple. When you bring your mind home to your body, you are established in the here and the now. And you, you become aware of the many wonders of life that are available in you and around you. Many conditions of happiness that are already available. And with that, you can create easily a feeling of joy, a feeling of happiness. The French uh, have a song. They like to sing, Qu'est-ce qu'on attend 
Why do you have to wait in order to be happy? You can be happy right here and right now because you have so many conditions of happiness available already. So generating joy and generating happiness is the two exercises that follow. There is a small distinction between joy and happiness. In joy, there is still some element of uh, excitement. And the image uh, they use in the scripture is the image of a person walking in a desert and he ran out of water. And suddenly he noticed that is, there is an oasis in front of him, tree with beautiful shades and a lake of fresh water. So he has a feeling of joy. And when he arrived and practically cupped the water and drink, that is happiness. So a, a, a good practitioner should be able to generate a feeling of joy a, and or a feeling of happiness whenever she wants to. And the principle is simple. You breathe in. You bring your mind home to your body. You establish yourself in the here and the now and you recognize that there are so many conditions of happiness and we have to enjoy the here and the now. And you can create a feeling of joy, a feeling of happiness. And when you can do that for yourself, you can do it for the other person. Darling, don't you you see that we are so lucky? We have so many conditions to be happy right here and right now. And you can help your partner to be joyful, to be happy in the here and the now. So the, in principle, the practitioner, a good practitioner, should be able to create joy and happiness at any time of the day. And that is the Buddhist art of uh, creating happiness, the art of happiness. It's simple. And the base is uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness, base, happiness. When we sit together like this and breathe mindfully and generate the energy of uh, peace and joy, the collective energy produced is very healing. This morning we sat together and everyone was breathing in and out and produced the energy of mindfulness and joy and together we create uh, that wholesome collective energy that can be healing. We help with the healing and we can enjoy the healing when we practice as uh, a Sangha, 
a group, a community. The same thing is true when we walk together. Every step can create mindfulness, joy, happiness, brotherhood, sisterhood. And we get the healing while walking, and we help the other person in the group to heal. Because the collective energy uh, of mindfulness and compassion and joy can be very healing. One person can generate energy of joy and happiness, but 1,000 people can generate a much more powerful energy of joy and happiness that can be healing. I remember uh, when the September 11 event happened, I was in, uh, in California. And that morning, we, we, we took a bus, two buses, and went to, uh, went to Berkeley, where we have to give uh, a public talk. We learned about the destruction of the Twin tower, tower, Towers in New York. A few days later, I noticed that uh, the whole uh, American nation was shaken by the news and the energy of anger and fear is tremendous. We can feel the collective energy of anger and fear. And that energy is not healing. It's very dangerous if you allow that energy to penetrate and to uh, harm us. And that is why four days later in Berkeley, during uh, beginning the public talk, we monastics, we wear our uh, Sangati uh, orange robe and we conduct a session of uh, calming. The first thing the American people have to do is not to react. They have to learn how to calm that strong emotion. If we act, we react right away, push, being pushed by that collective energy of anger and fear is very dangerous. We can start a war very easily and get many people killed from this side and from the other side. So if the collective uh, energy of fear and anger is dangerous, not conducive to healing, the energy of mindfulness, compassion, brotherhood, is very positive. And that is why uh, setting up communities of practice, generating the collective energy of mindfulness, compassion, and brotherhood, and, and uh, joy is a very important thing to do in this time. Yeah, uh, in this time. We can create a healing environment by setting up a practice uh, community, a practice center, 
by coming together and practice together. Mindful walking, mindful breathing, because our society need, need, needs that. We do it for ourselves, for our children, and our, for our society. So the fifth and the sixth is, uh, represent the art of happiness. How to generate joy. How to generate happiness for, our, for the sake of our healing. And the next two exercises is to recognize and to take care of the pain in us. The seventh is breathing in, I'm aware of the painful feeling in me, the painful emotion in me. When a feeling of pain, a painful feeling arises, when a, a painful emotion arises, the practitioners, the practitioners should know how to handle it. And with, it is with mindfulness that the practitioner can handle a painful feeling and a painful emotion and does not allow the energy of pain, uh, the feeling and the emotion to overwhelm us and to push us to act to react in such a way that create uh, uh, suffering for us and for the other person. Breathing in, I'm aware of the painful feeling in me. That is the seventh. And this is an art. And we have to learn because most of us do not want, do not like to be without pain. We are afraid of being overwhelmed by the pain. That is why we always seek to run away from our pain. There is a loneliness, there is a fear, there is an anger, there is despair in us. And we don't feel it pleasant to go home and encounter these uh, uh, energies in us. And most of us try to cover up by consuming. There are those of us who go and, and, and look for something to eat, not because we are hungry, but because we know that uh, we feel that uh, while eating we may forget from for some time for a while the suffering in us. And some other people turn on the television, and even the TV program is not interesting. We do not have the courage to turn it off. Because if we turn it off, we have to go back to ourselves and encounter the pain inside. And the, the, the market provides us with many, many items in order to help us to cover the suffering inside. Most of us try to run away from ourselves or to 
cover up the suffering inside by, by the way of consumption. But in this uh, teaching and, and practice, we should try to go home and take care of the pain. That is the seventh exercise. And there is a way to go home without fear of being overwhelmed by the pain. That is uh, generating the energy of mindfulness. And when you are armed with uh, that energy, you are no longer fearful. You go home with that energy of mindfulness. And it is with that energy of mindfulness that you can recognize the pain and try to embrace it. Like last night, we talk about a mother holding her baby that suffers. So the mother represents the energy of mindfulness and the baby our painful feeling. If you know how to use the energy of mindfulness to embrace our feeling and then a number of minutes practicing. And if we are a beginner in a practice, we might borrow that energy from our brothers and sisters in the practice. Dear Sangha, he is my pain, he is my sorrow. Please help embrace it for me. And everyone will be breathing in and out and support you to recognize and embrace the pain in you. And that is why practicing with the Sangha is much easier. And taking refuge in the Sangha, it, it means just that. Because the Sangha can generate a powerful uh, collective energy of mindfulness that can help you to recognize and embrace your pain. And later on, you can do it for yourself when, when, when you have got uh, some relief So practicing mindful walking, mindful breathing, you generate energy of mindfulness. And with that energy, you recognize the pain, the painful feeling in you, and you embrace it tenderly. You lullaby your pain. So the seven is to be aware of the pain, of the painful feeling. And the eight is to calm, to embrace, and to calm the pain. Look back, looking back here, you see this the same process. The third is aware of the body and the fourth is calming body. Here do the same with the feelings. The seventh is aware of the painful feeling and the eighth is to calm the painful feeling or emotions.
the young people who do not know how to handle a strong emotion like anger or fear or despair. And they believe that the only way to end the suffering is to go and kill themselves or to kill the other person. So the young people should learn how to deal with a strong emotion. And we as parents or school teachers, we have to master the practice in order to transmit that practice to them. Uh, we have, uh, our Dharma teachers have organized retreats for parents, for school teachers. We have trained many thousands of school teachers in this uh, practice. In India, in Thailand, in France, in, uh, in uh, Great Britain, and elsewhere to, uh, so that school teachers can bring this practice into, into school. And you don't need to be a Buddhist in order to practice this, to release the tension in your body, to generate a feeling of joy and happiness, to handle a strong emotion. And parents and teachers have to learn. When a strong emotion comes, we should stop whatever we are doing and take care of it. And the practice is simple enough. You lie down and you put your hand on your belly and begin to breathe. Or you might put yourself in the lotus position. You stop the thinking. You don't allow your mind to be on this level. Stop the thinking and bring your mind down to the level of the navel. This is the trunk of the tree. This is uh, the top of the tree. When you look uh, at a tree in a time of a storm, and if you focus your attention on the top of the tree, you will see that the tree is so vulnerable, fragile, and can be broken at any time. But when you direct your attention down to the trunk of the tree, you have another feeling. You think that uh, you see that the tree is deeply rooted in the soil, it can stand the storm. And that is why in a time of a strong emotion we have to bring our mind down here. This is our trunk. This is uh, the top of the tree. Bring our attention down to the abdomen and focus all your attention on the rise and fall of your abdomen, breathing in you notice the rising of your abdomen. Breathing out, you notice the falling of your abdomen. Breathe deeply and focus your attention only in your in-breath and out-breath. Out 
And if there is something to be aware of, is that an emotion is just an emotion. You are much, much more than one emotion. You are body, feelings, perceptions, mental formation, consciousness. The territory of your being is large, and one emotion is nothing. An emotion is something that comes and stays for a while and will have to go away. Why do you have to die just because of one emotion? And that is what we should remember. And it should tell the young person, why do you have to die just because of one emotion? You can very well handle a strong emotion. You can learn now. And if uh, the day after tomorrow you have a strong emotion, you'll be able to handle that strong emotion. We should not wait until uh, the strong emotion comes in order to begin learning. It may be too late. It will carry you away. So today we have to begin the practice. Practice of deep breathing. Stopping our thinking, just focusing our attention on the rising and falling of our abdomen. And as we continue the breathing, the emotion will not be able to push us to do something destructive. And when you survive the emotion, you have confidence. Next time when the strong emotion comes, you do exactly that. And you can tell your child how to do it. Your child may be only five or seven, but he or she can have a strong emotion. You can take his hand and say, Darling, let's breathe together. We breathe in, you know, our belly is rising, and you do something like guided meditation, and the child will follow you and you channel to him or to her your energy of mindfulness. And you learn, you, you teach him or her to practice. And school teachers can also do that uh, in school. We are much more than our emotion. Emotion is something impermanent. It comes and goes. Why do we have to die just because of one emotion? If during the time of the emotion you have that insight, then that insight will save you. And if you can remind the young person of that insight, you save his life or her life. When we practice uh, a, few, a few weeks of mindful, deep breathing like that, it will become a habit. And when, it, when a painful feeling arises, a painful emotion arises, we will remember to practice. And we can very easily handle a strong emotion or a painful feeling. This is the art of suffering.
the above two exercises is the art of happiness. And these two exercises is the art of suffering. The fact is that if you know how to suffer, you suffer much less. Much, much less. And you can make good use of your suffering in order to create understanding and compassion. When I was a young monk, I believed that the Buddha does not suffer anymore. Because you, you, you think so naively that uh, what is the use of be, becoming a Buddha if you continue to suffer? <laughs> and that is one question I had when I was a young monk. The other question is why the Buddha continue practicing sitting meditation and walking meditation? He already he is already a Buddha. <laughs> what is the use of? Uh, he does not need to practice anymore. <laughs> that is the second question I had, and I when I grew up, I found the answer. There is a deep connection between suffering and happiness. Happiness and suffering, they inter-are. Like this uh, sheet of paper. The left and the right. The left, of course, is not the right. But without the right, the left cannot be. You cannot remove the left from the right. They inter-are. They cannot be by themselves alone. They have to inter-be with each other. That is the teaching of inter-be. You cannot be by yourself. Alone, you have to inter-be with everything else. This flower is teaching us into being. She is giving a Dhamma talk. If you look deeply into a flower, you see that a flower is made only of non-flower elements. In this flower, there is a cloud. A cloud is not a flower. But without a cloud, a flower cannot be. There's no rain and no flower can grow. You don't have to be a poet in order to see a cloud floating in a flower. It's real there, really there. And there is a sunshine. Sunshine is not flower, but without sunshine, no flower is possible. And if we, we continue to look, we see many other things like the earth, and the minerals, without them, a flower cannot be. So it is true that a flower is made only of non-flower elements. A flower cannot be by herself alone. 
The flower can only interbe with non-flower elements. So the same thing is true with the left and the right. You cannot remove the sunshine from the flower. You cannot remove the soil and the cloud from the flower. You cannot remove the left come from the right. You cannot ask someone to come and bring the right to New York and the left to San Francisco. No. The same thing is true with suffering and happiness. When you grow lotus flowers, you know that you need the mud. You cannot grow lotus on marbles. Marble. And when you look into the lotus flower, you see the mud inside. Smile to the mud in the lotus. We know that uh, happiness is made of non-happiness elements. Happiness is a kind of flower. She is made of non-happiness elements. Just like a lotus is made of non-lotus elements, including the mud. This is uh, the teaching of the Buddha into being. Last night, we have learned that if we listen to suffering, we get in touch with suffering. Understanding will arise. Will arise. Understanding suffering will bring about compassion. And it is these two elements, understanding and compassion, that can heal you, that can make a person happy that can make a person a human, a real human being. A human being without understanding and compassion cannot be a happy being. Without compassion and understanding, you are utterly alone, cut off. You cannot relate to any other human being. And we know that understanding and compassion are possible only when you come in touch with suffering. Without the mud, there is no lotus flower. Without suffering, there can be no understanding or and compassion. Understanding is, first of all, understanding the suffering. The suffering inside, and then the suffering in the other person. And it is with the mud of suffering that we can create a lotus of understanding and compassion. That is why the kingdom of God is not a place where there is no suffering. If there is no suffering, there is no happiness either. No, no mud, no lotus. This is very clear. No left, no right. So my understanding of the kingdom of God is a place where people know how to make good use of suffering in order to create love, understanding. We need, we need the mud in order to create lotus flowers. We need suffering in order to create understanding and compassion. 
That is why we can speak about the goodness of suffering, the usefulness of suffering. Let us not to look at suffering as something only negative. It is useful. It is there is a goodness. And that is why we begin to understand that statement. If you know, if we know how to suffer, we suffer much less. And we can make good use of suffering in order to create understanding and compassion which are at the foundation of happiness. So, looking deeply, we can touch the nature of interbeing between suffering and happiness. In that case, we don't try to run away from suffering anymore. In fact, we can hold it, look deeply, and we can find a way out, the way of transformation and healing. The first noble truth spoken by the Buddha is dukkha, suffering, ill-being. It is called a noble truth. And you might like to ask, what is so noble about suffering? <laughs> the answer is that if you look deeply into the nature of suffering, you can see the way out. That is why ill being can be a noble truth. Looking deeply into the nature of ill-being, you can see how that ill-being is being, being made. The second noble truth is the making of ill-being. Suppose ill-being is your depression. Instead of trying to run away from your depression, you take a look, deep look into your depression. You see why and how that depression has come to you as a reality. And the Buddha has said something like, um, nothing can survive without food. Your love, even if it is so beautiful, food, if you don't know how to feed your love, it will die after a few months or a few years. So love cannot survive without food. And you learn how to feed your love. You practice flower fresh, mountain solid, water reflecting space free and try to fit your life. Your depression also, if your depression refuses to go away, 
because you keep feeding it. You consume in such a way that always nourish your depression. If you look deeply into the nature of your depression and identify the source of nutriment, the source of food that you have used to feed your depression, and then you can cut off that source of nutriment, and your depression will have to die to go away. And that is the teaching of the Buddha on the first noble truth. Looking into the first noble truth, you see the second noble truth in terms of nutriment, in terms of food. The making of ill-being. We have learned, we have lived in such a way in the last six months or so that have made uh, depression into a reality. The way of, of uh, our, the way of life, the, the items that we, are, we can have consumed in the last six months or so have led to the depression. The Buddha said, what has come to be, namely your depression, your suffering, what has come to be if you know how to look deeply into it and recognize the nutriment that has brought it to you, you are already on the path of uh, healing. You are already on the path of emancipation. And that is why looking into ill-being, we can see the second noble, noble truth, the making of ill-being, the kind of uh, nutriment that has nourished your ill-being, the kind of consumption that you have uh, used in order to bring and nourish your ill-being. And when you have seen the path leading to ill-being, you see at the same time the opposite path. This is the path leading to ill-being. And if you imagine the opposite, and then you have the path. The path of healing, the path of, uh, of happiness. The path of the cessation of your being. We learn that uh, the path, the noble path leading to happiness, begins with uh, right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, etc. And then the path leading to your being is the opposite. It's the wrong, wrong view, wrong thinking, wrong speech, wrong action. Instead of right, right view, right thinking, right speech, and right action. 
So looking deeply into ill-being, you see the path leading to ill-being. And when you see the path leading to ill-being, you see the opposite path at the same time. If I abandon this path, if I embrace the other path, I, it will lead to the cessation of ill-being. And it will lead to the presence of uh, well-being. Well-being is the third noble truth. And in the text, the name of well-being is the cessation of ill-being. When ill-being, when ill-being stop, well-being manifests itself. It's when, it's uh, like to say, when darkness is no longer there, light is there, because light is the opposite of darkness. So the first truth of ill-being is ill-being. Speak for itself. And in the light of uh, interbeing, the confirmation of the first truth is also the confirmation of the third truth. When you say the left is, you say at the same time the right is at the same time. When the Buddha confirmed that ill-being is there, he confirms also that well-being is also there. Without this, the other cannot be. That's interbeing. So we should uh, understand the teaching of the Four Noble Truths in the light of interbeing. If uh, ill-being is there, something else is there also at the same time, well-being. And if there is a path leading to ill-being, there is a path leading to well-being. It's so simple. And that path can be described in terms of nutrients, in terms of food. And that is why the practice of mindful consumption can lead to healing. So looking into the first noble truth, we can see the second, the third, and the fourth. Like looking into a flower, we see the whole cosmos in it. <coughs> we know that uh, recognize the pain and embracing the pain tenderly, we can we can bring about a relief, we suffer less. 
but with the exercises that follow, we can go further. We can transform deeply the suffering and create happiness and joy and liberation. And uh, we sh shall have the chance to learn about that uh, follow uh, later in the retreat. Now, as we have spoken about the Four Noble Truths and have seen the Second and the Fourth Noble Truths in terms of path and also in terms of nutriment, uh, it's good that we, uh, we speak about the four kinds of nutriments that can lead to healing. And this is, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, the object of the fifth uh, mindfulness training, mindful consumption. If uh, our society practices mindful consumption, we shall be able to heal ourselves, to heal our society, and also heal uh, the planet Earth. This teaching is given by the Buddha, the four nutrients. The first nutriment is uh, edible food. This is kind of food that we uh, consume with our mouth. And we should eat in such a way that can preserve compassion in us and health. And the Buddha told the story of a young couple who fled the country and took refuge in another country. This must have been a true story the Buddha hear from that couple. They try to, to flee the country. They have to cross a desert in order to go to another country. Halfway through the desert, they run out of food. And they, know, they knew that they are going to die. Three of them, because the couple went with their little boy. And after one day of reflecting, they made a terrible we use grain in order to make alcohol and to, uh, to make meat in order to make the meat and to do and to make alcohol we had to destroy a lot of our forest the meat industry has devastated our our planet and we know that eating meat is more polluting than driving a car 
are polluting a lot. And every time we eat a piece of meat like that, it's like we eat the flesh of our children who are dying. Every time we drink alcohol, we know that uh, the amount of grain that can be used to feed these hungry children uh, have been used to make alcohol. And eating and drinking like that cannot preserve our, our compassion. And scientists have told us that reducing the drinking of alcohol by 50%. Reducing the eating of meat by 50% can already change the world. And that is why uh, we have to, to consume mindfully in order for our planet to have a future and for our, uh, our compassion to be maintained in our heart. In countries like uh, Vietnam, uh, many, many, many Buddhists uh, uh, eat uh, vegetarian um, 10 days a month. So it's not difficult for them to increase uh, the day, uh, the, the 10 days into 15 days. So you have uh, uh, made an appeal for the Buddhists in Vietnam to increase uh, vegetarian days into 15 days. It is possible to eat well and healthy without using a lot of meat and alcohol. And uh, a collective awakening can help us stop harming destroying our planet. And uh, if we do not wake up, we still continue to eat the flesh of our own sons and daughters. That is the first uh, source of nutriment spoken by the Buddha. The second source of nutriment is uh, sense impressions. consume with our eyes, our ear, our nose, our body, and our consciousness. When we read a book, we consume. When we read an article, magazine, in a magazine, we consume. When we listen to the music, we consume. When we watch a film, we consume. Even when we uh, have a conversation, we consume. And 
what we consume may be toxic, not good for our health. Suppose you talk to a person who is full of anger and despair, and during the conversation, you take in, you take in, you take into yourself the energy of uh, despair and hate and anger of that person. It's not good for your health. So conversation can be toxic also. And if we are a psychotherapist, we have to be careful because we have to listen to many stories of suffering a day. If we don't know how to practice uh, the fifth and the sixth uh, uh, exercise on mindful breathing to to provide us with enough joy and happiness, we will lose our balance. And someday we will get sick also. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to, to get a good source of nourishment in order to, to continue for a long, for a long time. If you are a journalist, you know that people are consuming what you write. And what you write is full of anger and fear and despair. You are poisoning them. Not when you, not only when you read the news, you get the toxics, but when you write an article, a report, you, you, you empoison people. Uh, there are many good news, but they don't report. They report only the sensational news, death, bombs, and violence, and so on. Last time when I visited uh, India, I was uh, invited by the Times of India to be a guest editor for one day. That day happened to be the day of commemorating Mahatma Gandhi. So they, they, they thought it's appropriate to invite a, a Buddhist monk to be the guest editor of that day. I was accompanied by many monastic brothers and sisters, so I accepted to be the editor of the Times of India. It's equivalent to the New York Times here. The day, the morning when we arrived at the headquarters, we received very bad news. There was a terrorist attack, bombing, and many people died. I remember that huge table, many editors sit around the table, and one of them asked, Dear Thay, 
what we should do on a day like this when we receive a terrible news like that. It's very hard. So I had to practice mindful breathing for a while. And then I said, dear friends, we have to report. But we have to report in such a way that can promote understanding and compassion rather than to make people angry and despair. It depends on you. If you take a look and you ask yourself the question as why they have done such a thing, what kind of nutriment they have got, what kind of perception they have in order to do such a thing to their countrymen. There must be wrong perceptions. There must be a lot of anger and hate. Or they may think that they are acting in the name of justice, the name of God. So you have to look deeply and to answer the question as why they have done such a thing. And when you have the insight and your, your report, your article will carry within itself elements of understanding and compassion. You have to report, of course, but there are many ways of reporting. And as a journalist, you can water the seed of understanding and compassion in people and why they read your article, they do not become victims of anger, fear, and despair. That's what I, I told the editors of uh, Time magazine on that day. Many of us have uh, suffering inside of us. And as not many of us know how to handle the pain, the suffering inside, we try to consume in order to cover up. And we don't know that what we consume in terms of sense impressions may contain a lot of uh, violence and fear and anger. And instead of getting the healing, we get sicker and so on. When our children watch television, they consume. They may consume violence, fear. And it's not good for them. And there are people who try to get rich by producing these kind of films, electronic games, and they empoison our children. So if you are a legislator, a congressman, a senator, you may like to, to discuss about making a kind of law that forbid the kind of uh, that act of producing toxic uh, items that can empoison your nation, your people. That's mindful consumption, mindful um, production, mindful consumption. That is the way 
to help us out of this difficult situation. Mindful producing, mindful uh, consuming. If we have received the five mindfulness, mindfulness trainings and live accordingly, then we have to organize uh, from time to time a Dharma sharing within our family or with, or with friends as how to, how to practice mindful consumption in order to protect us and to protect uh, our society. We have to explain to our children that's why we should not consume such or such uh, products because our children should be should should learn also to take care of themselves and uh, when we take a child to the supermarket, that may be a chance for us to give instructions as uh, as how to consume. That there are items that have been fabricated by children, children who do not have uh, a chance to go to school. There are items that uh, have been made uh, with materials that can be toxic, that can be destructive. And you can point to the items in the supermarket and tell the child about uh, the origin and the effect of such an effect, uh, uh, an item of consumption. I remember one day I went with the children to a supermarket, and before going to the market, we said that this is a session of meditation. We visited all the items in the supermarket. We should not buy anything. Just, uh, that day uh, we, uh, we tried to, uh, to make a table and we decided to go to the supermarket only to buy a few uh, nails and we agreed with each other that we shall not buy anything else than a few nails and we spent one hour and a half in the supermarket and the children had a chance to learn about the origin and the effect of each, uh, each item sold in the market. <clears throat> the third source, source of nutriment is uh, volition. Tư niệm thực. Volition is uh, our deepest desire. What do we want to do with our life? Of course, we, uh, we desire 
money and uh, you want to have a house, you have to have a job, you have a car and things like that. But the deepest desire, what is it? What do we want to do with our life? And that is a source of food. You are motivated by the desire. It's a, it's a source of energy. The Buddha also has a desire. He, de- he desires to, to practice, to be free and to help people. That is a good volition. That is a good food. If your strongest desire is to, to protect children from abuse, and that is a good desire. If your good desire is to build a society that is more compassionate, that is a good desire. But if your desire is to punish, to kill, like the desire of a terrorist, is not a good volition. If your desire is just to run after the object of your craving, namely fame, power, sex, and that can destroy your body and your mind. It's good. Good. That is not a good desire. So let us, according to this teaching, sit down and identify our deepest desire. What is it? And you can sit down with the other person, our father or our partner, and say, Daddy, what is your deepest desire? When you were a young person, what was your dream? Did you want to realize something in your life? Have you any... Have you been able to realize that dream, that desire? Daddy, do you think I can help you to realize that deepest aspiration? So father and son, father and daughter talking like that is very good. We try to identify our deepest volition because once we have a desire like that, we have a lot of energy. And if that is a good desire, and then we go in the direction of happiness and peace. People who do not have a deep aspiration, uh, do not have enough energy to confront difficulties and to overcome difficulties. And that is why the Buddha advised us to sit down and identify our deepest desire as a source of nutriment. Bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, the mind of love, is a very powerful source of, of nutriment. A bodhisattva is someone who has a deep aspiration to help people. That is volition. volition. Any bodhisattva, any great being, would have a source of, tremendous source of energy in him, in her. That is an aspiration, a deep aspiration to realize something with our own life. 
And if you don't have one, you should have one. Deep aspiration. And once you got that aspiration, you become alive. Your eyes shine. Your steps firm. You have a lot of energy. That is the third source of nutriment. And we can offer, we can inspire our children, our young people, to have a deep desire. As partner, we should sit down and inquire about each other's deep, deepest desire. And if you share the same kind of aspiration, they will consolidate your relationship and increase the amount of happiness and joy in your life. The fourth uh, source of nutriment is consciousness. Thuk-thuk. We eat, we consume our own consciousness. And there are good things in us that we should consume. And there are materials that are not good and you should not consume. If uh, we have uh, suffered as a child and the suffering can still be there and we may have the tendency to go back and to ruminate the suffering of the past. Many of us are caught in the prison of the past. We are not capable of living the present moment, of getting in touch with the wonders of life that are healing and nourishing. We tend to to go back to the past and re-suffer the suffering of the past. There is a corner in our consciousness where the films of the past are being projected. And you always go back there and watch the film again, again, and again. And that's not good food. Humiliation, suffering, hate, anger, And we have not been able to to transform these materials in our consciousness. If we know, if we are a good uh, practitioner, every time these materials come up, we can recognize them, embrace them, and transform them. We don't have to consume them. But if we are not a good practitioner, and then 
we continue to consume them. It's not good for our health. And if you notice that the other person, our partner, is consuming unhealthy materials in herself, we have to help that person. Darling, that's not healthy. To ruminate, ruminate the materials of the past. Let us come out together, take my hand, we go to the present moment. The light, the sunshine, the blue sky, all the wonders of life that are available here. And you should be able to help the other person to get out of the prison of the past. And in the present moment, you can practice so that you can transform these materials in that corner of our consciousness. We have to do it for ourselves before we can help the other person to do it. And then there is uh, the collective uh, consciousness. When people come together and produce the energy of mindfulness, concentration, and compassion, it's, it's a good thing to consume. It can heal you. I remember that uh, Dhamma talk in, in Germany. There were 1,000 people listening to the talk. And on the front line, I saw four young mothers feeding their baby, breast feeding. It's so, so lovely to see. The children, they are consuming the milk from the mother. That is the first nutriment. But in the whole, there is uh, the collective energy of peace. Because we all practice mindful breathing. And I can see that these uh, babies, they are also consuming the collective energy of peace. It's very rare that in a family there is that uh, powerful uh, collective energy of peace and compassion. So we should create a good environment for our children to consume the collective energy of peace, brotherhood, sisterhood, and joy. And we, if we happen to live, to be in a neighborhood where people are very angry and violent and despair, we should know that this is not a good place for ourselves and for our children. We don't want to think like them, to feel like them. But if we continue to, to live in that environment, we consume the negative, collective negative energy of hate, anger, and despair. That's not good food. For, for our own protection, or for the protection of our children, we have to pull out right away from that neighborhood. We have to protect ourselves first. That does not mean that we abandon people like that. We know how to come to a new 
place and build a good community, a healthy community, where there is a brotherhood, sisterhood, and joy and compassion. We can come back and help. And that is what we do. If you are a mayor of a city, think about that. Think of this uh, headquarters. Uh, think of, of this uh, um, neighborhood that is full of uh, violence and fear and anger. You have to got a strategy that can help uh, transform the collective energy in that place. Otherwise, children growing up will be violent, angry, and despair. So this is uh, the practice of mindful consumption. And the fourth nutriment is collective, uh, is consciousness, individual consciousness, and collective consciousness. And uh, if we want to create an environment that, uh, that heal, and then the Sangha building is a good thing to do. Create a health community, create a joy community. And people living in that uh, community will get the good food. And then you are instrumental to help uh, uh, not communities that are not so healthy to transform. Now there is sunshine. We can do walking meditation. <laughs> and every one of us, uh, if we have a piece of... Uh, Something to sit on is good. I have a little mat I bring along, and halfway uh, walking, we can sit down and enjoy our togetherness and contemplating the sky, the trees, and so on. So let us uh, take a break, and then when you hear the bell, come together in front of this uh, meditation hall. And we shall do walking meditation together. We shall walk in such a way that each step can generate the energy of peace, joy, and brotherhood. And we walk in such a way that every step, with every step, we can touch the kingdom of God, the pure land, the Buddha. This is possible with the collective energy of mindfulness.